we get we got a few more verses to go to to be able to knock out this booklet in this first chapter of Thessalonians. There's so much doctrine already in these first ten verses. So many things to look at, to study, to see, uh, to chew on, to meditate on. And I hope that you've been able to do some of that. But let's look here, verse number four. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. As you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake, and ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word and much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. From, uh, excuse me, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye, return, uh, how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Now let's look here at verse 8 today. We're going to see how the Apostle Paul is knowing and thankful for the work that God has done in their life at the church here at Thessalonica. It it was a pretty new church as we've talked about, but God had seen a great move. And there in that region, Thessalonica certainly was an important city, um, you know, politically, uh, geographically, through the trade, through all the financial, uh, financial things and all that stuff. But it became an incredibly powerful city spiritually for the Lord. It became examples as he talks about in verse 7. And uh, when the Lord saved them, the Lord truly saved them. Real salvation always brings real fruit. We talk about that in 1 John when we had gone through that. And we see it here. We see it all throughout the Bible. If there is real faith and trust in the Lord, there will be real fruit, real effects in the life of that individual. Now, when we come to verse 8 today, here's what we see. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord. Now, that's something that every church should be known for, right? You and I can't always go to the Philippines or to Togo or to Honduras or to a certain group of people, but you and I can send people to go and they go and they carry the gospel. They go. That's why the importance of sending missionaries, because the great truth is this. You and I, as we give to the Lord, as we pray uh, to the Lord for these folks, and we uh, have this prayerful supplication for these individuals, that what we would see is that the word of the Lord would, would trumpet, if you will, around this world. What is the will of God in this world? It's that people would know Him. It's that His people would know Him. It's that His people would proclaim to others how to know Christ. And that through the preaching of the gospel, souls would be saved and reconciled. Now let's look here. Verse number 8 shows us how they proclaimed the gospel. The church at Thessalonica did what should be done. Hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and share the gospel. Now let's get real real with this morning. You and I, we've heard the gospel. We hear the gospel all the time. Every time, every time we gather together, we ought to hear the gospel. Matter of fact, every day that you open up your Bible or pray, or any time that your eyes are open, what should your heart and your mind look towards and think upon? The gospel, because the gospel is nothing that we can outgrow. Rather, it is what grows deeper and deeper, the truth of the gospel within our hearts. It is our foundation, but it is also uh, built into our walls, our windows, our doors, and our roof. The gospel is all that we need, and from it flow all of the doctrines of Scripture that 
make us who we are, that give us what we ought to believe, and as well how we ought to live. So you and I hear the gospel. But then what's the next command? To believe the gospel. What is salvation? It is to believe, not just in our minds to go, well, that must be true, right? Plenty of people can say, I'm trusting in Jesus or Jesus is my Savior and still be just as lost. It Belief, it is not just a, a hoping, but it is a true, desperate, faithful dependence. It is that I have nothing, I can never have nothing, I can't earn salvation, I can't earn God's merit or favor, but I can trust Jesus alone. I can trust in the fact of who He is, I can trust in the fact of what He has done, which is die for my sins as a substitute. He has went into the grave and He has risen again victorious, and He now offers freely the uh, life of eternal life to all who would repent and believe. So today, if you have believed the gospel, you have obeyed the gospel call. You have obeyed the gospel invitation. Praise the Lord. It is a wonderful thing to hear the gospel and believe the gospel. And believing the gospel doesn't just happen when you get saved. Matter of fact, that's the start of continuing to believe the gospel day by day by day. And as we trust the gospel all the more, we grow deeper into the truth of the gospel, and the gospel continues to transform us and it changes from the inside out. But that's not the whole of Christian life, is it? What is now our job? If you have been told and you have received the gospel, what should you then do? Pass it along. Proclaim the truth of the gospel. If I just told you where to find a well that never runs dry, if I just told you how to go to the, uh, and find bread that will cause you to never hunger again, what would you do? You'd want to know where it's at, and you'd want to go get it. And then you'd probably go tell somebody else that you care about, wouldn't you? Right? If I, we have this a lot here in the South. When Food Lines got a good sale, you know what y'all do? It's the same thing I do. Hey, did you see that? Did you see Boston Butts is 99 cents a pound? Woo! <laughs> we get excited about a Boston Butt being on sale, and we're calling everybody. I get a phone call from my, me and my mom used to grocery shop all the time together. We'd clip coupons and stuff. She taught me how to, how to pinch pennies and how to shop and everything. Still, hey, did you see that? Oh, where'd you get that? But they had that. That's so nice. We're two and a half hours away, still talking about sales at Food Line. You know something? There's something a whole lot better than a sale at Food Line or a blue light special out of Kmart, which they don't even got those no more, I reckon. And it is that Jesus saves sinners. That's the greatest truth that there ever has been. But I'm afraid we get more excited and more willing to tell somebody about a sale or something nice that happened to us or how we found a, a dollar bill in the parking lot of Walmart or something than we are to tell people how to get to heaven. Now, it's quiet, I know, because we're all guilty. You're looking at someone who's guilty too. One of the dangers of pastoring is that we mistake that preaching the word from the pulpit covers the rest of our week. But it don't. All of us are called to go with the gospel. You know why? Because if you've heard it and you've believed it, you now have it. So you take it with you wherever you go. It is something that goes with us that, can, that we can't get rid of. It's changed us. And if it's truly changed us, it will cause us to want to tell somebody about it. Now, as we look here, Thomas writes, Paul affirms that these converts played a substantial part in this ever-widening scope of Christian witness. With Thessalonica at the, as the starting point, the message rang out 
as brass instruments that keep on ringing. The figure is of an echo that continues indefinitely implies the persistence of the testimony over an ever-increasing expanse. That's a fancy way of saying the Thessalonians couldn't hush up about Jesus. They, they couldn't stop. Now think about this. The Thessalonians weren't ones that decided, hey, we're going to get this big old effort. We're going to throw a map up on the wall. We're going to go neighborhood by neighborhood. We don't find that. What we do find is that as they lived their life as carpenters, as fishermen, as tradesmen, as politicians, as slaves even, that you know what they did? As they lived their life, they lived it by the gospel, through the gospel, and for the gospel. So that means that it was not just this sort of effort at the church that said, hey, we're going to put a few bags together and go on out. That's nice. We need some of that, certainly. But this was their individual lives. You know who carried the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria? It wasn't the preachers. It was persecuted believers. Fleeing persecution. And they took the gospel with them whithersoever they went and doing whatsoever they did. It was as unto the Lord and it was for the Lord and they proclaimed the gospel. It was a, a chime, if you will. I like wind chimes. Y'all like wind chimes? Anybody got a wind chime? We don't. I'm not to be trusted with them. When I go into a store that's got wind chimes, what do you naturally want to do? That's right. And, and then what happens is you can hit a wind chime and then you can walk over an aisle or two and you know what you still hear? It sounds a lot better than that, right? You hear that wind chime still. It's that continued sounding and ringing. That should be the life of every church and it should be the life of every believer that wherever we go, it is as if the echo of the gospel is going with us. Here another commentator says, not that they actually became missionaries, but they, by the report which spread abroad of their faith, compare Romans 1.8, and by Christian merchants of Thessalonica who traveled in various directions, bearing the word of the Lord with them, were virtually missionaries recommending the gospel to all within reach of their influence by word and by example and sounded the image is that of a trumpet filling with its clear sounding echo all the surrounding places that's should be our life it is not so much corporate programs as a church as it was individual practice you will never tell anybody the gospel until you tell somebody the gospel. Right? It does not matter. I found this to be true. You can set up times for a prayer meeting, and you know who shows up? The same ones that want to pray. You can set up times for door knocking. And the ones that show up are the ones that will go and door knock. You can make all sorts of programs to witness, but the ones that witness are the ones that want to witness. What's difficult for us, and it's a hard, big old pill to swallow, is that the reason why we don't witness is because we don't want to. The reason why we don't is because ultimately we're disobedient, but also we're afraid. We're afraid of rejection when we ought to not be. Because you know what? You can't save anybody anyways. You want to know what faithfulness is? It's not that you can say, Look at all these notches I got in my belt. Look at all these names I got in the back of my Bible. It's I've been faithful to the Lord. And when I go, 
so goes the gospel. Like a trumpet, an echo of my life. When people hear the sound of your life, what do they hear? They ought to hear much more than about church or about your problems or about your preferences. They ought to hear who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. Another one writes, apparently it was not through an organized evangelistic campaign that their witness went forth. Though Paul's preaching in Thessalonica and elsewhere illustrates this approach, but it was through personal lives and testimonies of these transformed individuals that neighbors heard about their faith in God. As they went, the gospel was heard everywhere, so an apostolic missionary campaign was not needed. You want to know who's going to win your neighbor? Their neighbor. You know who their neighbor is? You. You know who can win your family? You. How about your coworkers? I'll work with them. I might not ever see them. You can. You and I, everywhere we go, have folks all around us. You ain't got to walk far to find somebody lost, do you? You ain't got to walk far to find somebody that needs to know Christ. You don't have to go too far from your home, from your job, or even from your own family to find somebody that needs to hear about Jesus. As a matter of fact, you and I, every time we find anybody, they need to hear about Jesus. Even if they give us a response, hey, well, I appreciate you sharing the gospel with me. I'm born again as well. Praise the Lord. I'm trying to share, the, share my faith too with folks. Well, that's an encouragement. You know why? Because if you talked and witnessed to somebody and they truly are born again, then you know what you've done? You've encouraged them. One, because you've reminded them of the gospel. And two, you've encouraged them to do the same thing that you're doing. Witness, witness, witness. Our lives should be filled and marked by the gospel. Evangelism is first an individual command before it is a corporate campaign. I've had folks say, when are you going to do some door knocking? Well, I will make sure, and I'm responsible for witnessing. And I can set up a program here. And I've watched time and time again, and this sounds terrible, I know. The first week, you got a good group that comes. The second week, not so much. The third week, the fourth week, you want it? Somebody, somebody lead it. I want it too. But you know what? Before we ever do a corporate campaign, we'll never do a corporate campaign of witnessing together if we're not witnessing by ourselves. If you can't share the faith with your neighbor, you can't look at a coworker during lunch break or give them a call after work or, or meet them for a cup of coffee and say, hey, we can't talk about it here, but I can tell you over coffee. Let me buy you dinner. Let me get you breakfast. I just want to talk to you. If we won't do that, we won't come to an evangelistic meeting. We won't come to a time where we just go, yeah, I'll sign up. You already signed up the moment you trusted Jesus. You already signed up to be an evangelist the moment you said yes to Christ. Every one of us. Now here, we look, we have to ask ourselves, would the same thing be said about Victory Way? For from you sounded out the word of the Lord. Would it be said about your life? He says, but also in every place, your faith to God is spread abroad. It's not so that people would know the name of the First Baptist Church of Thessalonica or anything like that. 
nor of even Victory Way Baptist Church, but it's so that we would be able to say, we just want to be faithful to the Lord. And that our lives reflect faithfulness to the Lord. Now look at verse 9. The reason why they could witness, I believe, is because of verse 9. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, is the effect that they had, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. There's plenty of folks who are saved and they've got their fire insurance, they've got their ticket punched to heaven, and that's wonderful. Everybody needs that. That's what we're trying to tell people how to do. But there's a very small number that have been willing to turn aside and truly trust Christ for all things and in all things. To be a disciple. To lay aside every idol. To lay aside every worthless thing that this world has to offer that holds us back. To everything that keeps us from following Christ with with a full heart. They had become servants of the living God. These believers had turned to God, the only true God, from idols. This strongly suggests that many of those believers had been pagan Gentiles. The Jews, of course, abhorred idolatry. And yet, let's pause there. How many times did the nation of Israel go to idolatry? All the time. Constantly. The reason why you and I don't think we have idolatry in our life is because we don't make physical idols anymore. They used to literally take a tree, carve it out, put on some eyes, put on some ears, make some little hands on the, on the statue. And this is why God mocks their statues and their idols. He would say, it's got ears, but it don't hear you. It's got eyes, but it cannot look at you. It's got hands, but it can't help you. Only the Lord can. Our idols look much different. Our idols are oftentimes from within our heart and are not made with hands, but yet they're still there. Someone has observed that humans have the freedom to choose who their master will be, but they do not have the freedom to choose no master. That's true. All of us serve something. All of us worship something. Are we serving or worshiping? Biblically, rightly. The Thessalonians had chosen to serve the living and true God rather than God's creatures or satanic power. Meaning this. When God saved them and pulled them out of the world, they left the world altogether. The world behind me. The cross before me. Though none go with me, I still will follow. They had sold out for the gospel. They had not only said, good, I'm glad Jesus saved me. Now I can go to heaven, but I can continue to live my life as I please. No, it is the Lord has saved me. I've been bought with a price. Therefore, now I will glorify him in my body, in my life, in my words, at my job. Whether I'm an owner of a company or a slave, they wanted to serve Christ. Do we really realize how great salvation is at times? I wonder. You see, the church had a true reception of the gospel and the messengers of the gospel. We see that in verse 9. They themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you. This great effect of the gospel being preached and being lived out. And true repentance comes in turning from their idolatry. The first fruit of salvation is that idols are stripped away. But you and I, just because we're saved, does not mean that we don't need idols to be stripped away from us. Every day should be a turning from your idols unto the living God. The moment you wake up should be a turning from yourself to the living God. Every time you lay down your head should be a turning from yourself and to the living God. 
Every moment of every day should be turning of oneself and turning from the world and turning to the living God. The first movement of this conversion was to God. And as a result, they turned from idols. There was no syncretism between their faith and old religious loyalties, nor did they take half a step by adopting God into their pantheon, placing Him alongside their other religious loyalties. They took the radical step of abandoning those gods that were part of the worship of their family and their community. It is a great privilege to serve the living God. It is a great honor to serve Him. And we have, because of who He is and what He has done for us, we should desperately with all of our might turn from every idol to serve Him. How do we serve Him? In spirit and in truth, we serve Him as as bondservants. As those who have now been bought, we have a new Master. It's no longer sin, it's no longer the world, it's no longer our flesh. So no longer do we have to say yes to those things. They don't own us anymore. Now we are bondservants of the living God who has bought us with His own blood, and now we can serve Him freely. For you, it sounds like an oxymoron that we can serve, which doesn't sound free, but yet we can serve freely. This means that you have your choice after you are saved whether or not you are fully served the Lord or not. Many Christians are living half in, half out. Many folks are half serving the Lord with lip service, but not with heart service. Heart service matters much more than lips because you can talk the talk, but if you don't walk the walk, your talk don't matter. Your talk can take a walk if it ain't walking. We need realness in our lives. They wanted to serve the Lord alone. Just as a true servant serves their master, excuse me, serves their their master's will, there is an understanding that when the master is away, the servants are continuing to work and await the coming of the master. Look at this. Verse 10. They've turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. Let me ask you this. This is pretty simple. All right? Not a trick question here. What are we waiting on Jesus for? That's right. There we go. Don't be afraid. He's coming. There is coming a day that those clouds are going to open and Jesus is going to call up His bride. Y'all looking forward to that? Do you know it's coming? Do you know this? That There's not a single thing that we've got to wait on for that to happen. Not a single thing. There's plenty of other things that are going to be happening and waiting for the second coming of where He comes back on this earth. That's a great tribulation. I ain't too worried about that neither. I know that the Lord is going to call us out of here. And it could be today. And there used to be a time when Christians, and especially the early church, used to say, even so, come Lord Jesus. May the Lord come. Even come today is the idea. You know something? The church of Thessalonica looks like a church that was really ready for that. They were sharing their faith, living their life, serving the Lord. They weren't just busy, but they were faithfully busy. Meaning that in all things, whether they were working, whether they were serving, whether they were in the church or out of the church, whether they were gathered or scattered, it was to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and waiting for His return. They believed in the imminency of Christ's coming. We've lost that. 
the truth is still truth. That Christ can come. Now today it's often just used as a scare tactic in revival meetings and camp meetings and jubilees and all sorts of meetings and things. But you know something? It ought to put some holy fear in us again. It should bring us both assurance that Christ is coming with His reward for His people, but as well at the very fact that, what was me, Christ is coming. The Lord is coming. And they knew it and expected it and awaited it, and they didn't see it in their day. But those who died in Christ, those Thessalonian saints of God, the moment that trumpet's out, they're up first, and then we're going to meet them in the air if we're alive and remaining. Nevertheless, the Lord Jesus is coming. As we see this, Spurgeon said, Oh, this is a high mark of grace when the Christian expects his Lord to come and lives like one that expects Him every moment. If you and I knew tonight that the Lord would come before this service was over, in what state of heart should we sit in these pews? In that state of heart we ought to be. I think about my, my dog, Squirrel. That's his name. I'll let you figure it out how it works, but it does. When he's at the house and we're away, whether we go to Walmart, grocery store, or church, whatever it might be, most of the time he's, he's asleep. Sometimes when we open up that door, he's still curled up on the couch. And he'll open up his eyes and pretend like, oh yeah, I was, I was watching, I was waiting, right? <laughs> I, I'm ready to go. I'm glad you're here, right? Yeah, yeah, you were asleep, dude. The, the sofa's still warm, right? But then there's other times we show up and we've got a big window in, the front, uh, in our living room that sometimes we'll keep the blinds open or he'll poke his head through there. And then there's another spot where there's some uh, glass doors in the dining room and if we come at night, you know what happens sometimes? Squirrel will hear us, and then what he'll do is he'll go to the, the dining room and he'll poke his little head through, watching. Like we can't see him, right? <laughs> but he's just watching. And then when he sees that it's us and we get to that front door, by the time we open up that door and we put in our code, you want to know the code? I ain't telling you. I can't even remember it anyway. We walk in, by the time that's happened, you know where he's at? He's right there. Poking his head out the door. You see, many of us live life like he does about half the time. We're on the sofa, asleep, and we're not really watching and waiting. I'm tired. I need a nap. I'll, I'll take a quick nap. He won't come while I'm sleeping. We've surprised him a couple times, and he's like, oh, didn't know you was home. If the Lord came today, would that be us? But then there's other times, faithful times where it's as if all he's been doing, for all we know, he might be just doing that, going from one window to the other window to see if he can see us. Waiting, waiting, waiting. And to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead. And He'll raise us up too. Even Jesus which delivered us from the wrath to come. What's the rapture? It's taken us from the tribulations that we have here 
delivering us from the time of tribulation, the great tribulation, so that we can be with Him. I don't think that my dog is any happier than when we come home. His tail will wag. His body moves like it's a fishing lure. And it's as if no matter we're gone for five minutes or five hours, same response. Are we as longingly waiting and looking for Christ? He has already saved us from wrath. I might face tribulations in this world, and it's not even a might, I will. In this world, if you are alive, you will face tribulations, you will face persecution, you will face suffering, and then you get to die. <laughs> but to live is Christ, to die is gain. The absence from the body is to be present with the Lord. It is a joyful thing and a wonderful thing. The Lord looks and sees the death of the saints. It's joyful. It's wonderful. They're coming home. And the day that Christ calls us out of here, that too shall be a glorious day for us. What we find here, Barclay writes, in verses 9-10, through 10, two words are used which are characteristic of the Christian life. The Thessalonians served God and waited for the coming of Christ. The Christian is called upon to serve in the world and to wait for glory. Some of us are waiting, but we ain't serving. Some of us are serving as if he's not going to come back. And we're just doing our own thing. We must be serving. We must be waiting. Sorensen writes, Thus in the final two verses of the chapter, Paul notes repentance, serving God, looking for the Lord's impending return, the resurrection, and an indication of the pre-tribulational rapture. We talk about how can there be so much truth in just a few verses? Because it's God. And it's because it's God who has given this to us that we might know Him. So as we bring this to a close today, every believer should be like chapter 1 Thessalonians. They are an example of what it means to be a church and what it means to be a Christian. They're an example in living and preaching the gospel as we proactively serving and patiently waiting await the coming of Jesus to keep us from the coming day of wrath. Do you know this? That the Lord, has, if He has saved you today, you're already kept from the wrath to come. Tribulations will come on this earth, but you won't have to go through the day of tribulation. Do you know that? Praise the Lord for it. If you want to know what that day is going to be like, read Revelation 4 through about 19. It's going to be rough. And I ain't going to be there. And if you're saved, neither are you. If we've got any reason to praise the Lord, to serve the Lord, it's because we're waiting for the Lord. He said He's going to come. Do you think He's going to come? I do. You know why? Because He says He's going to come. It might be today. might be tomorrow. It might not even be in my lifetime. Do I think it will be? Yes. Nevertheless, He's coming. And the simple fact that He said He's coming, and the simple fact that He said I've delivered you already. It is as if we've already been delivered and we will be delivered. Therefore, let's serve Him. Let's wait for Him. 
And our great motivation for serving Him is waiting for His coming. It should not bring us this fearful dread, but rather this fearful desperation of wanting to please our Lord. I want to be found waiting when He comes. I want to be found faithful when He comes. That should be our heart today. Let's pray. Lord, we come to You this day. We just want to thank You for Your faithfulness. Thank You for Your goodness. Lord, we thank You for the wonderful truths in this passage that we've been able to study for, for several weeks. And, and Lord, for the, the wonderful truths packed in just su- such a couple of verses, Lord, that we can serve You as we wait for You. And Lord, may we do so. May our hearts long for You. I pray that You would rid us of all idols, rid us of all distractions today. God, today that You would be honored and glorified in all things that we say and do. Prepare our hearts now as we go into the next service today that we would worship You, uh, that You would give every heart uh, just uh, the, the answer to their prayers, the need would be met. Uh, Lord, if there's needed of salvation, save them, Lord. If they need uh, repentance or, or conviction or encouragement, Lord, whatever the need might be, Lord, meet our need as you give us your word and as we worship you. And we do so with hearts that are glad and thankful. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.